Hey, Jay, you know about ocean stuff. I guess. I mean, some. You know I didn't actually sell my voice to a sea witch, right? That was just a joke. Yeah, yeah, of, of course. I, I, I totally knew that. But, you know, ocean stuff. Ocean stuff. Ocean stuff, like about Namor. Oh, okay, yeah. I thought this was going to be like echinoderms or something. Echino what? Are those the Atlantean vampires? What? No, echinoderms are things like sea cucumbers and starfish. The Atlantean vampires are the aqueos. Was that what you needed to know? No, I was wondering about Namor's family. His dad's human, right? Yep. Leonard Mackenzie, explorer, ship's captain, and undersea Casanova. So he hooked up with Namor's mom in Atlantis? No, she stowed aboard his ship. But Namor grew up in Atlantis, right? Kinda. He was initially raised in exile, but he and his mom got to go back when he was a kid. Not dad, then. No, no, he was long since out of the picture. So is Namor's mom still around? Mrs. Mackenzie? What is her name, anyway? Princess Fen and No. She got body-swapped with a dead sorceress, and then they both died. Again, in the sorceress's case. Ouch. Did his dad ever show back up? Yeah, on and off. For a while, he was in a cult dedicated to senior citizen supremacy. Huh. They were thwarted, though. So he's still around? No, he got killed by Tiger Shark. Couldn't Namor just tell it to leave him alone? He's in charge of fish stuff, right? Not a Tiger Shark. Tiger Shark, the supervillain. Ah, I'm guessing he's Atlantean? Oh no, he started out as a regular baseline human named Todd. Who just liked to swim? And bite? Well, Todd was originally an Olympic swimmer. But then his spinal cord was damaged in an accident, so he let the unscrupulous Dr. Lemuel Dorcas try an experimental procedure that had a chance of letting him swim again. Like experimental spinal surgery. Don't be ridiculous, Miles. This is a comic book. Dr. Dorcas decided that the best way to treat Todd's paralysis was by splicing up his DNA with some from Namor. Uh, I guess that kind of makes sense. I mean, Namor's super strong and resilient, and he is half-human. And some from a tiger shark. What?! I'm Jay Rachel Atterton. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 122 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. Hey, Jay, welcome back. Thank you. It is good to be back, although I am still sort of a little bit raspy, I think. Uh, a little bit. I'm a little bit stuffed up from the cold I got from you, so I guess it evens out. Yeah, it's been kind of a doozy of a month. Yeah, you've been gone more than usual. Yeah, no, so I got trigeminal shingles, and then I had to go to New York for work and stuff, and then I got back and promptly got a respiratory infection, and now I'm back in the studio. I have been playing a lot of Marvel Puzzle Quest, though. That's been nice. Oh, yeah? How's that? So I just got Colossus, and now I just want to play all the time, because the thing with Colossus, every character has moves, and one of Colossus's is the fastball special. Okay, that makes sense. So he can throw a Wolverine? Oh, no, no, no. That's what I'm getting to. That's the best part. He can throw anyone. Anyone? He can throw anyone who's in the party. So you can just, like, fucking chuck Dr. Doom at people. <laughs> you can throw the Punisher. You can throw whoever is in your party. So I, at this point, I just always have Colossus in my party and sort of choose it, you know, not really strategically, but based on who I want to see Colossus throw at people. Is Shumagorath in this game, like, the big tentacle eyeball? Because throwing that at someone would be terrifying and hilarious. See, here's the thing. I think, like, the more understated ones are funnier. Dr. Doom, obviously, but, like, the Punisher. Can you imagine the, you know, post-game of the goons you've been fighting sitting around and then this big metal dude he just fucking threw the punisher at me the punisher don't you mean you know wolverine no 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 he had a fucking gun there was a skull it was the punisher and he threw him at me. he just fucking picked him up and chucked him at me see now i'm just imagining colossus throwing like cypher at someone it would be amazing oh cypher just going oh god why 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 right 
But anyway, it's brilliant. It's comedy gold and I love it. And um, you should all play it. I think we have spaces left in our alliance. Okay. It's awesome. I'm Captain Corbeau because Of course you are. Yes. Yes, I am. Our alliance is Absalantis. Of course it is. I'm delightful. You, meanwhile, you have been reading a comic and yelling random quotes from it at me across the living room all evening. And I feel like you should talk about this because I'm never going to be able to get some of those out of my head. Oh, geez. So, um, Hub, one of the hosts of Teen Titans Wasteland, gave us a copy a couple of Rose City Comic Cons ago of Skate Man number one. There was only ever number one, which is this comic Neil Adams did about like this roller derby guy with nunchucks who was in Vietnam. And then there was murder and his best friend died. And he's got this like sidekick named Paco who has truly amazing pro profanity and it is certainly a comic and goddamn wait wait i want to go back to the part where you said this was by neil adams neil adams is an interesting human being and people should read more about him because it is not a boring tale the tale of neil adams what do you think he dreams skate man which is what i'm gonna dream from now on so the best thing about skate man is that one point he vows that he's never gonna skate again is he he's roller skating right not like a skateboard it's roller derby uh, no paco skateboards he gives paco a rocket powered skateboard at one point Huh. Yeah, it's pretty great. It Uh, seems like these guys should team up with Team America. I would be fine with that. I would read the hell out of that. So anyway, that very much aside, we have some comics that we're going to talk about that are not Skate Man, which is perhaps unfortunate. None of them are nearly as entertaining as Skate Man. That's (laughs) the thing. We're doing Atlantis Attacks this week, and it's... Why are we doing Atlantis Attacks? So here's the thing. So Atlantis Attacks is uh, the sort of overarching storyline of Marvel's 1989 annuals. It's kind of like the 1988 annuals with the Evolutionary War, where each of the annuals Marvel did tied into this sort of bigger story about the high evolutionary doing some weird shit. Okay. And see, if it were that, I'd be down with that. If each one of these stories were a one-shot about Namor showing up and fucking with whoever the main characters were, just being really mean to them and leaving, I would read the hell out of those annuals, but it's not. There is no Namor. There was no Namor in any of the annuals I read. And, you know, the stories themselves, they're okay. They're not great. Some are better than others. But what's really good in these annuals, and the reason that I think it's totally justified that we're doing an episode dedicated to this, is that some of the backup stories are solid gold. So we should probably talk about the big continuity stuff, at least, like, superficially. So here is the compromise that I am proposing. Let's just blaze through the main story in each of the issues. We're talking about three annuals today. Blaze through the main story in all of them really fast, and then go back and spend more time on the backup stories. That sounds reasonable. I mean, there is some content we should cover, certainly, but we don't need to spend a whole lot of time I on mean, it. I mean, I do want to talk about Longshot and his rock. Longshot and his rock is adorable, it's true. It's pretty cute. So give me some setup here. What are we talking about? Okay, so Atlantis attacks. How do you say that? Atlantis attacks. Atlantis attacks. I don't know. There's really do you, no good voice for it. Maybe globally, like, through water. <laughs> okay, let's go with that. That sounds good. I, so, I'm really impressed that you just did that without any kind of, like, post-production. That was remarkable. If I ever get tired of IT and podcasting, I can be a professional guy who talks like he's underwater. It's a very niche field. Well, you know, I mean, you need someone to do it. I, I guess you do. So anyway, Atlantis attacks. <laughs> anyway, Atlantis attacks. Okay, so the deal is, this took place across a bunch of different annuals, and the Evolutionary War, like you said, it was a little more episodic. With this, it's one big story. So some of these X-Men stories are pretty disjointed. But overall, what happens is that there's this dude named Gaur, or Gaur, G-H-A-U-R anyway, and he's the leader of the Deviants at this point. They're a genetic offshoot of humanity. He teams up with a woman named Lyra, who's the Empress of the Undersea Kingdom of Lemuria, to destroy Atlantis and turn all humans into snake men and have these seven ladies who he kidnaps get pregnant with the god Set's babies. And then also to bring Set into the world and have him possess a giant crown, which is made of giant snakes that will then come to life and become just a bunch of giant snakes that were in the shape of a crown. This all sounds highly plausible. This sounds like something I would dream. It also sounds like something where I would yell what after you told me about it. Doesn't it? 
But um, anyway, so that's that's kind of what's going on here. Like Gaur and Lyra and their big plot to do all these things is going on behind all of these stories. Actually, speaking of Lyra and things that make you yell what, when I was working on the cold open, I almost included more about the actual makeup of Namor's family because it gets so much weirder. And she's a big part of that. That doesn't surprise me. She's pretty strange. Yeah, like there is definitely a half nephew going on and we'll get there someday, maybe. I don't know if I actually want us to get there or not. But yeah, so Atlantis is attacking and Namor is not involved, which means that it's bullshit and Atlantis stories should not be allowed to exist without Namor. Because why would you even bother? Well, I did find out one thing that justifies almost the whole thing for me, which is that Atlanteans, like the species that Namor is half part of, their genetic name is Homo Mermanus, which is awesome. You made that up. I did not. I saw it on Dr. Internet's research pages that I looked at that I did not make up. Homo Mermanus. Well. So anyway, that's basically the setup. So I guess we might as well just dive into the first story from X-Men Annual number 13, which is called Double Cross. All right. This is written by Terry Austin, whose name you might recognize. He has inked a ton of X-Men. The art is by Mike Vosberg. It is a rare, at least rare in this era, non-Claremont X-Men issue. And I'm not a big fan of this one. I was underwhelmed by the writing in a lot of these, but this one I think more than most. Yeah, it seems like sort of a generic superhero story, which is unfortunate given that it's an X-Men annual. Like, I would have expected the fact that the X-Men were the X-Men to play in a little bit more. Like, it seems like you could have filled in almost any superhero team. Yeah, it's very fetch questy and kind of pointless. But it starts with Dazzler showing up in Wolverine's bedchambers, overcome with passion and attempting to get him to join into said passionate overcometness. I do love her line here. Let me arouse those animal passions seething beneath that barely civilized veneer. Doesn't he usually kill people when that happens? Generally speaking, but, you know, this time it's sexy. Well, as we soon find out, when an angry redhead, whom we've never seen before, at least not with the X-Men, bursts in, this is not actually Dazzler. This is a villain named Diamondback who has been temporarily body-swapped with Dazzler and now in Dazzler's body is attempting to seduce Wolverine. Diamondback and Dazzler were body-swapped via a gentleman named Mr. Jip, J-I-P, who is a cloak-and-dagger villain. And Diamondback's main deal, as her name implies, she is part of the Serpent Society. I love the Serpent Society. They're so ridiculous. Let's talk about the Serpent Society a little bit and what their deal is. I mean, why are they even? Well, so they were around in Captain America a whole lot. So they're a group of mercenaries for the most part, and they're all named after different types of snakes. And so their powers, like you can tell the writers really had to flex their writerly muscles to get their powers to line up with what kind of snake they were. The writers, hell, I like the idea of people wanting to join the Serpent Society and then having to rationalize how their powers could be snake-like. I like that plan. Like, okay, what kind of snake is most like a really good accountant? What kind of snake can count really well and use Microsoft Excel? Ah. Uh... Now, to get these two ladies reswapped. The X-Men have to aid Mr. Dip in tracking down four artifacts that the Serpent Society had been after. These are, in fact, four pieces of the Serpent Crown. You don't need to know that. It doesn't actually matter at all. Yeah, four things that will be forged into the new Serpent Crown. It's all part of the big Garolira plot, which honestly is not terribly interesting. So let's not worry about it. So they break into four groups, and Gateway teleports each group to a different location with an image of a piece of the crown in their minds. They go, they look for the crown, they fight the Serpent Society— Let's just do the highlights real. So the first team we've got is Wolverine and Dazzler in Diamondback's body. They are headed to the Savage Land, where they run into Asp and Puff Adder and Boomslang. Okay, Boomslang is amazing. I didn't know about Boomslang before rereading this issue. Like, I'd read it when I was a kid, and I guess I just forgot somehow. Boomslang is a dude who throws these boomerangs that are shaped like snakes, and he's amazing. 
So is, is he also a snake? Boomslang? I, I don't know where that name comes is from. Is he also a snake guy? Is he a snake guy who, like, one of the many species of snakes who throws other snakes at its enemies? I mean, I've played enough River City Ransom to know that you can totally throw dudes at dudes. Snakes don't have arms. That's why they can't wear vests. But that would also make the throwing stuff complicated. Well, it's true. Maybe they just sort of, like, you know, hold them in their teeth and then swing their heads around and toss them. But the point is, I looked up Boomslang who was immediately wonderful to me, and found out that the Marvel database, marvel.wikia, describes him as, and I quote, notoriously incompetent. Yeah, that sounds about right. And uh, so Wolverine says to him as they're fighting, I've got two pieces of advice for you, Sonny. One, get a real power. Two, lose the stupid accent. Because Boomslang has an Australian accent. I gotta wonder, is that a Pride of the X-Men dig? I kind of think it might be, because that came out around 1989 also, so it could be. So I'll just say, Wolverine, you tell him, you big dingo. While Wolverine is fighting Boomslang, Havoc, Rogue, and Colossus are sent to Lima, Ohio. Yeah, they head to this shopping center to find, you know, this other artifact. And they're confronted by, you know, a bunch of members of the Serpent Society. But my favorite part is when Black Mamba attacks Havoc. Yeah, and he has to defeat her by blowing up some vegetables. Yeah, yeah, like she makes this vision of Polaris, but then he sees Polaris turn into Malice because, of course, you know, his girlfriend turned into an evil version of his girlfriend and that's still troubling him. And then he shoots randomly with his powers, but they hit all of these cans of vegetables that are along the aisles in this grocery store in the shopping mall. And the pureed vegetables in them shoot out in perfect arcs and hit the snake lady. And she says, and I quote, Aye! And it's pretty great. Apparently that's her one weakness, pureed vegetables. Not many people know that snakes are incredibly vulnerable to pureed vegetables. The Serpent Society is getting more and more and more dubious as we go. So they eventually find that a member of the Serpent Society has beaten them to the artifact. And this is actually one of the really, really great moments. This is Rock Python, who emerges from a manhole with the idol in hand and finds himself face-to-face with the X-Men, specifically Rogue, who asks, What do you do, little man? Well, I fling trick snake eggs that shoot out steel ribbon on impact. Uh Uh-huh. Care to surrender the thingy? Sure. You bet. Catch. Good plan, Rock Python. So uh, Storm, Psylocke, Longshot, and Diamondback in Dazzler's body head over to Iceland to find an artifact that is basically a rock. Yeah, no, their vision is just a rock. And the first thing you see when they get there is Longshot just picking up and checking every rock and be like, this one? Nope. This one? Nope. Just in the background of what's going on. Have I mentioned that Longshot's like my favorite X-Men character? And he finds it and he gets an entire panel devoted to his absolute jubilation um, and just him yelling, I found the rock! Oh, long shot. It's the little things. You know, he can just take small pleasures and turn them into enormous pleasures. He's He's like Dinah from Maple Hill Farm. Oh, it's his work to carry rocks around? Yeah, so this is a tangent because these books are boring and and so we're automatically thinking about a lot of more interesting things. One of my very, very favorite uh, kids' picture books is a book called Our Animal Friends at Maple Hill Farm. Actually, the whole Maple Hill Farm series by Alison Martin Provenson, which I highly recommend, by the way. They're delightful for children of all ages and adults. But there's a dog in it named Dinah, and Dinah likes to take stones and carry them around, and no one knows quite what she does with them, but it is her work. Now I'm just imagining that book exactly the same, except Dinah is just Longshot. Yes. I love this plan. So anyway, yeah. Dinah find the rock. Is, is old. She's 13 years old, and she's very small. <laughs> just like Longshot, in all of those regards. Muffin is the other dog, and Muffin is very young and very big and going to get bigger. <laughs> so yes, Longshot finds the rock, and then he trips, and the rock falls into the hands of the X-Men, and they get teleported away as Longshot's crushed under rocks. 
And I was waiting for this to turn into like one of those things where Longshot's bad luck ends up being like, you know, for the greater good later. So it turns out to be good luck. And no, that doesn't happen. No, if something can be an interesting twist in this story, it's not. Yeah, it's unfortunate. So everyone gets back with the artifacts to Mr. Jip, who gamely reverses the body swap. So the Diamondback and Dazzler are in their own original bodies and also teleports Longshot back. So that's fine and pointless. Yeah, that's nice of him, especially because the next thing that happens is that Sidewinder, former leader of the Serpent Society who has been dethroned and was working secretly with Diamondback to undercut the Serpent Society, teleports in and the two of them teleport away with the stuff to go turn it into Lyra and Gar, who happen to be on Octopus Time. Yeah, yeah, they're on Octopus Time. You guys remember that where like the X-Men were hanging out on Magneto's old weird Cthulhu looking roulette-esque base? Yeah, no, it's where Cyclops and Lee Forrester got shipwrecked. Cyclops got that amazing shirt with the octopus on it. Yes, that's where the octopus tunic comes from. So hey, it's nice to see Octopus time back again. So Gar and Lyra give the two Serpent Society people a pirate treasure chest full of golden jewels, which, hey, that's on theme. I respect that. And Storm is eventually going to end up in the Brides of Set, but that doesn't actually happen in an X book. It happens somewhere else in the crossover. Yeah. So we're not covering it because we don't actually care about Atlantis attacks. Yeah. uh, Those women that Gar and Lyra want to uh, impregnate with the god Set's babies, those are the Brides of Set. Storm doesn't actually have a snake baby. That's probably a very good thing. Uh, Likewise, Jean, right? Uh, Yeah, Marvel Girl is another one, and Dagger, and a whole lot of other folks. So, yeah, that's the X-Men chapter of Atlantis Attacks, and it sure is a comic story. Well, onward! We go to New Mutants Annual Number 5, Here There Be Monsters, and we once again have uh, Rob Liefeld. He is drawing this first New Mutants work. And he, of course, will get his real break in the Marvel Universe by drawing the New Mutants and then transforming them, whether Miles likes it or not, into X-Force. I'm sorry, Miles. I'm just saying, I had a lot of feelings about when that happened when I was a kid and I was upset and I've mellowed a little since then, but the angry teenager is still present. Uh, Well, speaking of angry teenagers, they are still the new mutants at this point, and they are coming back from a major storyline that hasn't happened yet. So when this comic came out, the new mutants had just, I believe, left for Asgard, where it turns out they would spend many, many, many issues. And this story takes place after, which means that we see, spoilers that Mirage is no longer part of the team, and Rusty and Skids seem to have disappeared as well. But that gets ahead of ourselves, because we start with the return of that great artifact, the Horn of Doom. Do you remember the Horn of Doom? The Horn of Doom, last time we saw it, was something the Numians randomly found while diving in, like, the harbor outside New York, or possibly the Hudson River. And it summoned a giant octopus monster. And before that, we had seen Dr. Doom vehemently insisting that he should be able to toot it. Yes, yes, Dr. Doom does as he pleases. Or, as the internet has photoshopped, Dr. Doom toots as he pleases. I feel like toots is kind of covered by the larger umbrella of does. Well, also, there's a big toot sound effect, which I think really speaks for itself. Like, you don't need to add toot to toot. One toot's plenty. I believe we talked about this at length last time we discussed the Horn of Doom, which was, I think, our last New Mutants episode, because Namor was running around with them. Yeah. Now, the last we saw the Horn of Doom, Namor said he was taking it somewhere safe. As it turns out, where he was taking it was to his cousin, Namorita. His name is Namor. His cousin's name, Namorita. I do not buy that. There's also a Namora later. Like, is this just what you call everybody in Atlantis? Is there a Namorat? If I were an Atlantean, I would just say, hey, what's up, Mermanus? Oh, not much, Mermanus. How about you? I would just call everyone Mermanus. And his Martian cousin, Namork? Nice! Nice! Thank you. I'm pretty proud of that. <laughs> Namork from Atlantorc? Okay, that doesn't work. Yeah, well. But still. So, yes, Namorita. So she's this half-Atlantean-looking lady. She's got wings on her feet and stuff. And she's asleep in her bedchambers wearing this negligee kind of thing that why would you possibly wear that underwater? What is the logic there? I mean, it looks like she goes shopping with Vera. 
Oh, uh, Vera Cantor, Beast's girlfriend? Yeah, it's similar filmy green roughly situation. Okay, well, hey, there we go. Uh, you, you get a no prize, question answered. I guess, maybe. Namorita and Vera hang out. But either way, what it doesn't answer is how it manages to work underwater, which it really, really shouldn't. It's true. But uh, the readers are not given much time to ponder this because these three dudes break into Namorita's chambers to steal the Horn of Doom. Actually, we get a ton of time to ponder it because she fights them while wearing said filmy little tiny roughly top. We should also mention that the guys who attack her, the ones who are after these, all have appearances that should be vaguely familiar. Now, you as the reader will know that they are not new mutants. But one of them is entirely in black. One of them looks kind of techno-organic and glitchy. And one of them is all furry. Yeah, so they're named Cole, String, and Spike, which are such lazy names. Like, they so remind me of just some of the 90s, like, Mutant Liberation Front kind of characters. Like, okay, Forearm is the character I always go to. He's got four arms. His name is Forearm, like your arm has, as part of it, even if you have four of them. I hate that guy. I have a special affection for Forum just because he's such a ridiculous premise. Like, I almost have to respect him as an underdog and root for him. I bet he gives really good hugs. I bet he does. They're really thorough. But anyway, so yeah, these three, and it turns out what the deal is, is that Gar, Gaur, he has sent them after Namorita to make it look like the New Mutants have attacked, which really seems unnecessarily both A, convenient that he happened to have three minions that looked just like three New Mutants, and also really unnecessary. Like, couldn't he have just had some of his soldiers that can breathe underwater, for instance, just disguise themselves? Yeah, none of these guys can breathe underwater. But you know who can breathe underwater? The characters that show up to help Namorita. Ah, uh, yes. S-U-R-F-E-R-S. Yes. So this group, Surf or Surfers or- No, no, it's not Surfers. It is never written as Surfers. When it is written that way, it is always spelled out with dashes. It is S-U-R-F-E-R-S. Okay, so S-U-R-F-E-R-S show up and they are three Rob Liefeld creations and presumably also Louis Simonson who writes here- And they are named Sharkskin, Undertow, and Eel. Their powers are basically what you would think. Sharkskin has Sharkskin, Undertow can make Undertow, and Eel is stretchy? Like an eel? Kind of. And they help her out. And, okay, so they show up in this issue, they show up in one other Atlantis Attacks issue, and then they show up to save some whales from SeaWorld way later. You know what I love about them? What? Their name doesn't stand for anything. It's always spelled out like it's an acronym, S-U-R-F-E-R-S. Doesn't stand for anything. It might stand for something. They nope. might just never say nope. what it stands for. Nope. Here's my no prize theory. It's that they saw that Earth groups tended to put periods or dashes between letters in the names of things. Sure, like S.H.I.E.L.D. And they didn't understand that those things were acronyms. They just thought that that was how you name a team. <laughs> okay, I'll buy that. I will totally buy that. I suspect that SURF was supposed to be an acronym, and they were referred to as SURFers, and maybe it was unclear in the script or something. The world may never know, but you know who they remind me of? I do not know who they remind you of. Zack and the Neutrinos from the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles cartoon from the 80s. Were the Neutrinos actually Neutrinos? Because that raises some questions. No, they weren't, but they were these, like, teenager alien types who were super rad, and their leader was named Zack, because that's what you were named if you were the leader of a rad group when it was the 80s, and also the 90s for that matter. Yeah, they they were all friends, and they hang out with Ninja Turtles and had these, like, little flying car things. And one time, I had a dream about them that I was friends with them, and then I woke up in my top bunk... And they weren't real, and I was super, super sad for the entire day. Have you ever had a dream about S-U-R-F-E-R-S? No, and I never shall. It really sounds like we don't want a small child to know what we're talking about when we spell that out. Uh, excuse me, dear, but I think we should make sure that Billy doesn't have to worry about the S-U-R-F-E-R-S. Do we assume that this child is afraid of surfers? That, like, that they're lurking around or in his closet like monsters? I mean, shark skin's pretty intimidating looking. He's big and his skin is, like, spiky if you try to pet him one way. Oh, I assume that this dude was just scared of, like, guys in wetsuits. I've been thinking about this a lot for reasons related to stuff. 
<laughs> I'm intrigued and also worried. It has worried. to do with our summer special. Oh, okay. Well, that's entirely reasonable. But anyway, we digress with the S-U-R-F-E-R-S. And so Namorita's like, hey, I know who those people who attacked us were. They're totally the new mutants who I heard about were involved when this horn got taken in the first place. So we should go and track them down and get the horn back. Don't you mean the N-E-W-M-U-T-A-N-T-S? <laughs> in fact, yes, I do. So that's going on. And we also find out that the S-U-R-F-E-R-S, they are actually Atlantean mutants who were mutated by nearby atomic testing. And that's actually kind of cool because everyone forgets that when mutants were first created back in the 60s, that was their deal. Like the X factor, the mutant gene, was caused by exposure to atomic radiation. Now, the New Mutants are back from Asgard, even though they haven't actually gotten back from Asgard even close when this issue comes out. You know, we can take it on faith. And they're looking around for Ship, because as we recall, Ship, the big sentient spaceship that is their new home since they moved in with X-Factor, used to hover above the water. Now, this brings up problems with having a mobile landmark. We had this issue. There was a bus that was very brightly colored that was parked near our old place, and we'd tell people to turn at the bus. But it was the bus, so as it turned out, it would um, drive away. Well, it was usually there. It was there like 90% of the time. Yeah. But anyway, similar problem. Right. Now, in this case, I think ship is actually off in space and the X-Factor story that's going on at the time. But that's neither here nor there. The one where they go to the planet and like some of them get brainwashed. Yeah, that was a weird one. Yeah, Um, but it's Paul Smith on art, so I will forgive it literally anything. That's entirely reasonable. But yeah, so the New Mutants are trying to figure out what to do. They're like, well, maybe we could go home, kind of like they said after Inferno. And Boom Boom and Richter point out that, well, actually, ship is their home because X-Factor are their legal guardians. But they don't have time to think too much about this, even when Wolfsbane is swimming and attacked by sharks, because the S-U-R-F-E-R-S and Namorita show up to fight them to get the Horn of Doom back. So they all fight, and they eventually figure out that there's no point to them fighting, that the New Mutants aren't actually the villains, they're not actually who stole the Horn of Doom, and they decide they're going to team up and go for it. But unfortunately, someone blows the Horn. Yes, indeed. Oh, and we find out that the Horn, depending on what note you blow on it, it can summon a different monster with every note. Wait, does that include, like, halftones? Where do you assume that notes start and stop? Are we talking like a seven note scale? Because that's a fairly specific Western invention. I'm not sure, but I'm just remembering like when we used to learn to play the recorder when we were in elementary school music class. And now I'm just imagining Atlantean kids doing that. And they're just monsters just popping up all the hell over the place. No, no, only for playing the Horn of Doom. But um, how would you practice? How would you know? I guess if you get the monsters that you want, then you're doing it right. And if you, you get the wrong monsters, you're not. Well, maybe they've got like a mock-up one that's not enchanted. So you can like practice getting the right embouchure and stuff. Maybe. That's a really good question. This is an important issue. This is a question of our time. This also probably explains why like sousaphone parts and large brass instrument parts in in orchestral compositions tend to be fairly minimal. Your father studies the philosophy of music. Maybe we should ask him. I bet he knows about summoning monsters with a horn. I mean, that does seem like the sort of thing that he would happen to know about. (laughs) We'll find out next time you talk to him. But I feel like he would have less information for us on the actual logistics of it and more on the more extensive ramifications and whether and to what extent a horn plays explicitly to summon a monster as opposed to make music create something that you can, you know, term music and how that affects, you know, the ontology of the sound it produces and the intent behind it. The ontology of monsters would be a really good name for, well, anything, really. I bet that there's already at least one paper with that title. Probably true. But uh, yes, uh, Gar has used the Horn of Doom to summon a monster. And this monster, okay, we get down on Liefeld's art, and we're going to talk, by the way, a lot more about Liefeld coming into the X-Universe when he comes on as a regular New Mutants artist, so we, we won't gloss over that, don't worry. But in this issue, I love the monster he draws so much. It's like this sort of octopus thing with the face of Fizzgig from the Dark Crystal. Yeah, going back a little bit to his art in general, I mean, in this, my main impression of him is as a roughly adequate fill-in artist. You know, one's mileage certainly varies. Little teenage miles is still very sad. But um, yeah, so they go to fight it, and Boom Boom has time bombs, and she's like... The traditional way to get rid of these things is to explode them, and while tradition isn't usually my thing, 
just this once I'll make an exception. And since we don't have Danielle Moonstar to conjure up what she desires most, which is dynamite this time, this will have to do. Unfortunately for the Atlanteans and Boom Boom, while the time bomb dents the thing, its blood is super, super poisonous. And so basically the Atlantean city that it attacks is evacuated. Like a lot of people die and their homeland is super messed up and that's sad. And this actually achieves the end to which the monster was summoned in the first place, which was for a massive sacrifice to set. That's a real bummer, but at least the new mutants win and can go on to fight another day. Yeah, they drive it into a trench and they collapse it on it. So, Oh, and they destroy the horn, so that's cool. Unfortunately, no more summoning monsters with bye-bye tooting, but what can you do? Right, that's two down, onto X-Factor. So X-Factor is a story called I Must Go Down to the Sea Again, and this is written and drawn by uh, John Byrne. And inked by Walter Simonson, and my main takeaway from this particular story is that John Byrne writes Beast very well and story very badly. You know, I think the writing of Beast is absolutely the high point, but it really, really is. I mean, the story opens up as Marvel Girl is being rocketed through the air using a tractor beam, and Beast is hanging onto her ankles for dear life. Now, if this had been happening through the entire story, it would have been awesome. That would be great, man. It would be like, uh, I don't know, that that seems like an episode of Clerks the Animated Series. Just the two of them going past little tiny bits of action. (laughs) I like this plan. We should rewrite this issue completely. Oh, she's unconscious, too. Did you mention that? No, but she is. And so, yeah, he's like crawling up her body until he's sort of koala-ing on. So, with the fondest hopes that Lady Jean will forgive this obvious affront to her dignity, I must do as much as these horrendous winds will allow to ameliorate my position. That is totally Hank McCoy right there. The dialogue is wonderful. And so eventually he does manage to wake her up by yelling really loud telepathically. He sort of wakes her up. Well, yes, he at least does crash them into the sea and out of the tractor beam. Yeah, he wakes her up enough to get them out of the tractor beam, but not consciously enough to get her to, you know, keep them afloat. So they just crash into the water. Fortunately, she's also able to unconsciously create a telekinetic bubble to keep them from drowning. But Atlanteans are after them because Gaur, who of course is using this tractor beam because he wants Jean as a bride of set. Um, aren't those guys actually Lemurians? Oh, I think they are Lemurians, technically. That's true. They're not Homer Manus. Well, what can you do? So this is the other dialogue I really like in this story, which, uh, so Beast is great and Gaur is great. Because Gaur, as you know, he's yelling at his minions to fix things, recalibrate the instrumentation, realign the tractor field, do it now or I will see you all roasted over a slow fire. Gaur has spoken. Gaur is terrible at management. But he's really good at yelling and for me, that's just as important. Huh. Well, there you go. And so the Lemurians, actually, wait, no, they are Atlanteans because they're led by Atuma, who is Namor's crappy replacement. I don't even care anymore. Well, regardless, they show up to fight them. Now, Atuma, we have seen interact with Jean Grey before, sort of. There was a comic called Bizarre Adventures number 27, which we're going to do a full episode about probably before too long, in which Atuma kidnapped Phoenix and tried to marry her against her will and have a kid with her because her genetics were apparently awesome. I guess he has that in common with Mr. Sinister that he thinks that. Look, man, if a clone was good enough for Mr. Sinister. That's right. So Atuma, what we've known about him on the X side of things is that he's really not a big believer in consent, and boy howdy do we see more of that in this issue, and it's super unfortunate. Yeah, no, Atuma is a raging douchebag, and he once again, just as Jean has finally convinced all of her friends and colleagues that she's not Phoenix, and then I guess reabsorbed the Phoenix Force, but still, he is convinced that she's Phoenix, and he will not believe that she's not the same woman he kidnapped. And man, like at this point, she just needs a Daredevil-style I'm not Phoenix (laughs) t-shirt. Seriously. We should make those. I mean, most of us are not Phoenix. Atuma kidnaps the still unconscious Jean Grey, saying he's going to go off to interrogate her. Boo. Boo, Atuma. What he he actually does is dress her up in a creepy tiny shell bikini and then get thrown around telekinetically because that's what happens when you try to make Jean Grey do things she doesn't want to do. This part's actually really satisfying because he's, you 
know, approaching her, intending non-consensual terribleness, and says, A pity there will be no pleasure in this for you, as there most certainly will be for me! Because she telekinetically throws him through a wall, and it's very satisfying. Fuck yeah, Jean Grey. I'd like to think he has a super high-pitched scream. <laughs> I think he probably does. I'm like, totally just, down with Just, that. like, things shatter. <laughs> just totally, totally disconnected from his speaking voice. Like, he sounds like a deflating balloon. It's such a specific note that it summons a monster. Oh my god! <laughs> it's all coming together. This is the true meaning of Atlantis Attacks. And Christmas. So, anyway... At this point, Andromeda shows up, she's the daughter of Atuma, and she's also one of Beast's old allies from his time on the Defenders. Now, if you listen to Al Collins and Graham McMillan's episode about the Defenders, you may remember that most of the team actually died in the last issue. They turned themselves to stone. She was one of them. Turns out, she got better. Yeah, Doctor Strange changed them back so they could finish fighting the dragon that they turned themselves to stone to defeat, but it didn't quite work. But he didn't tell any of their former teammates that that happened, so they get to be periodically surprised that their old teammates are actually alive. Yeah, it seems very awkward. But regardless, Andromeda then goes with Beast after a brief scuffle to fight off Atuma, and it's really awesome because we actually see a female character doing something badass very briefly in this issue, which doesn't happen very much. Yeah, Andromeda's fucking awesome. I want her and Eowyn to team up and just kind of hostile take over the world. I am no man. I am also no man, but I am a homo mermanus. High five! I am no mermanus, but she is a mermanus. But that's just the species name. Well, anyway. She might being, what if she spells it with a Y? <laughs> Perfect. It's femermanism. That doesn't really work, does it? No. Well, what can you do? So, yes, the good guys win, except Jean is dying by the end of it, and Beast can't save her. She's taken on too much water or something. And so, at this point, Gaur appears as a big floating holographic head and says to Beast, I can save her, but you have to give her to me. That's your choice. Either she dies or she goes with me. And Beast is like, yeah, okay, go ahead. So, yeah, she might as well have a handle anyway. So, once again, we have a somewhat unsatisfying ending to one of these chapters. I mean, I guess you could read all of Atlantis' attacks, but I'm kind of okay with not doing so. And Andromeda so. also loses the fight and gets kidnapped by Gar to become a bride of Set. Again, they're going to be fine. They're going to be freed somewhere else later in the crossover that we're not going to bother with or get to. Just assume this was all a really weird, long, complicated dream with very little payoff. But I'll tell you what the payoff is, is the stuff we're going to talk about now. Because there are four backup stories, two in X-Factor and one in each of the other books, that are varying degrees of so much fun. All right, Miles. Three issues to the end of this. We've got a full tank of microphones, half a bottle of water, it's dark, and one of us is wearing sunglasses. Hit it. Now, as you may have gathered from that introduction, the first one of the backup stories that we are talking about is, in fact, a Blues Brothers riff. This is the story Inferno Aftermath, because we're never actually going to be done with Inferno. <laughs> we thought we were done. We'd forgotten about this story, but it's totally an Inferno story. Yeah, and this is the backup story from X-Factor Annual Number 4. Well, um, one of two, anyway. And it features agents Jacob Farber and Elwood McNulty of the FBI, who have been sent to investigate the Inferno affair, and they're just the Blues Brothers. Yeah, they're straight up the Blues Brothers. I mean, visually, exactly, and their first names are the same, and I don't know why, but I'm totally okay with this. You know, why not? So they're just going around very seriously investigating, asking questions of various people we've seen. We get a brief cameo from the reconstituted and now entirely human and only one human officer drill bit from Daredevil, which made me happy. Yeah, and we also find out what happened with the M-Squad, because you remember they were squished in that demonic elevator in that issue of Uncanny X-Men, and then they came back in Jubilee's first appearance? Yeah, they think it was just a hallucination. They apparently woke up the next morning in a normal elevator with weird demonic equipment. They don't mention that. I gotta say, seeing them not drawn by Mark Silvestri is kind of a letdown. I mean, Jim Fern does a perfectly good job on the art here. He does great likenesses of the Blues Brothers. 
But he draws the M Squad looking like normal people instead of weird cartoons, and that's sad. Yeah, uh, they head to the Daily Bugle to talk to J. Jonah Jameson, who once again is very precise about the difference between what he saw and the fact that he is not implying that that is what actually happened. You know, say what you will about JJJ, but he's actually a pretty stellar journalist, except for the part where he's always trying to slander Spider-Man. When he actually uses them, he has excellent journalistic ethics. Yes, also a great little mustache and he can yell real well. Yeah, how do they describe him as like Groucho Marx on speed? (laughs) That's kind of accurate. They head on to try to get the Avengers taken. They run into Gilgamesh. You may remember the Avengers actually just got back together in an Inferno backup story, and one of the reconstituted Avengers is Gilgamesh, who sums things up thus. There were monsters to slay, so I slew them. Well then. I mean, that pretty much sums it up, right? Right. Eventually, Jake and Elwood end up calling X-Factor. They're able to get in touch with Cyclops as he is about to leave for Madeline Pryor's funeral. So all of X-Factor is in their suits and funeral wear, sitting around trying to figure out what to tell these people. Eventually, as far as I can tell, because they're just exhausted, overwhelmed, and bereaved, they just go, fuck it, we'll just say that it was a hallucination ray or something. Specifically, a hypno-ray from an AIM dirigible that X-Factor themselves destroyed. Sure, why not? Because if you're going to make up a story, it might as well involve those guys in the weird beekeeper-looking suits, right? I mean, I assume that the Marvel Universe would entirely reasonably believe pretty much anything of AIM at this point. (laughs) That's probably true. Side note, Avengers Idea Mechanics, which is the version of AIM ever since Sunspot bought them, currently in New Avengers is where they appear, is really hilarious, and I love the idea of that's how you fight a supervillain. Evil science organization is, if they're publicly traded, you just buy them because you're Sunspot and you're rich. You buy them and gently redirect them. Exactly. I mean, they really just want to do science. You don't necessarily have to harness that science for evil. It's a really fun book. New Avengers by Al Ewing. If you're not reading it, you probably should. Yes, we highly recommend it. Yes. It's got a lot of new mutants in it too right now. uh, It totally does. Yeah. But anyway, so that's the official story that gets published in the newspapers. And we get a great little stinger thing at the end where a demon picks up a newspaper with this headline that someone had thrown away and just says, a hallucination, eh? This I gotta read. Which is a nice little fun ending to Inferno, which we promise is finally, for real, seriously over. I don't think we have any more Inferno stories to cover. I don't think. Please. Are you sure? No, no, I'm not sure. This is one of two kind of anti-stinker Looney Tunes feeling stories that we get, but the next one, which is the other X-Factor backup story, is the exact opposite. This is a Doctor Doom and Magneto story. It's drawn by John Byrne also, and it's written by Ralph Macchio, but not the Karate Kid, a different one. No, the Marvel editor. Yes. Yeah, which is the main Ralph Macchio, honestly. When I was first reading comics and first started paying attention to writers and artists and editors' names, I thought it was the same Ralph Macchio, and I was super excited until I found out it wasn't. Aww. Yeah, what can you do? That's lovely. And this is also known as the story where Magneto just straight up kills a kid. Sort of, yeah. But yeah, it takes place shortly after X-Men vs. Avengers. You remember that miniseries that we covered a long time ago? These backup stories are such a weird grab bag of chronology. So are the front stories, for that matter, with New Mutants. Okay, so that was the one where Magneto wanted to use his helmet to hypnotize everyone on Earth after Asteroid M crashed in Russia and there was a bear fight. Yes, and then the uh, ending was totally rewritten by a different writer. Yeah. So that was a thing. That was not a great series. I I liked parts of it. But um, anyway, yeah, so what's happened here is that Doom has, quote, invited Magneto to his castle to find out if he's really had a face turn, if he's really become a hero after being a villain for so long. Which is ironic, because in the actual comics at this point, when this came out, Magneto had just gone back to being a villain again, but this is set before that. It's a really strange timing, but it is a pretty cool story. So the deal is, Doctor Doom has built Magneto a new helmet from the fragments of his old one that he destroyed in X-Men vs. Avengers, because, of course... I mean, he's just rebuilt his helmet. It's the same one. Right, but, you know, he just happened to get a hold of that wreckage. It's not new, it's just the same one rebuilt. Yes. That's Uh, important, like, they argue about it for a while. They do. And uh, Doctor Doom's like, alright, here's the deal, 
I'm really wondering if you're a villain, and so the way to find out clearly is for us to have a telepathic fight using the uh, circuitry in your helmet and my mask. And what's more, I have this little girl that I kidnapped from my own country of Latveria, and she's tied to a chair, and she's a telepath, and she's going to tell me if either of us is lying. So basically, Dr. Doom throws the weirdest dinner parties ever, is what I'm getting from this. Yeah. And so that's what they do. They have this big psychic duel. And so we hear Magneto narrate Doom's backstory about his Romani father having saved Doom from this wicked baron, and Doom's mother's soul being imprisoned by Mephisto. As explored in the Doctor Strange Doctor Doom graphic novel, which you should totally read because it's got amazing watercolor art by Mike Mignola. And then Doom's netherworld contacting machine blowing up in his face, which gets his face all scarred and gets him kicked out of his university. Wait, wait, wait. It was a machine to contact the netherworld? That's how he got those scars? Apparently so. What the fuck? Basically, Dr. Doom has the best backstory, just like he has the best everything. And so then, you know, it details how he learned magic and then forged this armor for himself in the Himalayas and lost repeatedly to the FF. And um, Doom at this point doesn't want to hear about how he's losing to that fool Richards. And so he escapes the mental probing and reminds Magneto that Doom even defied the Beyonder on Battleworld because his brain is so awesome. So maybe Magneto had better back the fuck off. Yeah. So then it's Doom's turn to mentally probe Magneto's brain using his weird face circuitry. You're really making this sound like much more intimate than it is. Probe. Probe. I mean, they really literally just recite each other's backstories. Probingly. Not really, though. Well, you know, regardless, Doom narrates Magneto escaping Auschwitz with uh, this woman named Magda. And actually, the art here by John Byrne is really effective at showing them both kind of like emaciated and dying in the woods. It's really sad just to look at it. And you really feel for Magneto. And so we hear about them having a baby and Magneto losing the baby to a fire where he is not able to protect her because he is attacked by anti-mutant zealots who see him using his powers to protect him and his wife. And then she runs off to Vundergrove Mountain where she may or may not give birth to twins. And actually, the commentary here is really interesting because as Doom sees what happened, he basically says that Magneto let Anya, his daughter, die on purpose. In some way, your small mind does not comprehend. You craved the death of your daughter needed to see her demise, to truly claim your birthright and justify all your later atrocities in the name of Homo Superior. Magneto breaks free at this point, tells Doom, The stronger man learns from the past, but is not enslaved by it. And Doom says, Well, that's nice, but this kid has now witnessed all of our dark pasts and all of our weak points. If she grows up, she could totally give us a run for our money. What you gonna do about it, Magneto? What you gonna do? What you gonna do? Huh? 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 And so Magneto blows up her face. But it's very strongly implied that he knew she was a robot, presumably because, you know, metal. Which she is. She's a Doombot. This reminds me, actually, of the issue of Daredevil, where he's having to deal with these small, explosive, small child robots. And so you just see Daredevil running around doing shit like pitching kids down elevator shafts. (laughs) That is a really funny issue, and I love it a lot. It's pretty great, yeah. And so Magneto just says, hey, I knew this was a charade from the start. And now I'm done, and quoted, Contend with your brand of madness, Doom, and I will contend with my own. It's fun how we have these little talks from time to time. So it's actually a really cool issue, because Magneto and Doom are two of the best villains in the Marvel Universe, and seeing them play off each other like this, it's a ton of fun. It is, on the other hand, plucked weirdly out of chronology and absolutely baffling in context of current events as these comics were coming out. But hey, what the hell? And that brings us to New Mutants. Okay, 
This story is one of my favorite stories from seriously this entire decade that we're covering. Like, it's one of the best stories of the 1980s. This is written by Judith Kurzer Bogdanov and penciled by John Bogdanov, whom you may remember as the guy Annie Nascenti described as drawing the best hugs in the Marvel Universe. Okay, so we've loved Bogdanov's work basically every time we've seen him do X stuff. And I gotta say, this is probably my favorite single story he ever did for an X book. The way he draws Boom Boom is the definitive Boom Boom in my head. This is what she yeah. looks like. Yeah, this is Boom Boom. And we've talked before about how Boom Boom is a cartoon, how she functions visually and physically in a lot of very cartoonish ways, how she's a fundamentally cartoonish character. And this story dials that up to 11 and basically plays the character versus artist riff. Boom Boom is in her room complaining about the lack of cute boys among her pure group in the New Mutants. Her bedroom is bedecked with posters of sexy gentlemen and magazines with titles like Sex Gods of Rock and Roll. That is an amazing title for a magazine. I would subscribe to the magazine. I totally believe that Boom Boom would, or actually she probably just would have stolen it. Yeah, I assume that she just steals copies from local newsstands and then blows them up to create distractions. That sounds about right. Leaving a trail of destruction and horror in her wake. Oh, Tabitha, never change. And also, please don't get near us and blow up our stuff. It's all worth it for sex gods of rock and roll. <laughs> Richter actually comes in at this point trying to flirt with her, like talking about how they should go into town and maybe get a burger and see a movie. And it's great because he's sort of flexing his muscles and like finger combing back his hair. And similarly, John Bogdanov's Richter is my favorite Richter, at least of this era, before he totally changed his appearance in X-Force. Bogdanov is great at caricaturing these kids, but doing it really sort of sweetly. Yeah, yeah, it's all very affectionate, absolutely. Yeah, and um, Boom Boom shoots him down. She is not satisfied with the options, and she decides she might as well take a nap. And what we see next is a dream where she appears to wake up, but everything is in black and white, and she's on a sheet of paper on a drawing desk. She steps out of the drawing and starts talking to the artist, who mentions that she's an awful lot of fun to draw. Miles interpreted this as him being a little bit creepy. I interpreted this as him just pointing out that Boom Boom is a hell of a lot of fun to draw, which she clearly is. I guess that's true. I mean, look at her facial expressions and body language in this story. This is delightful. Like, this story is just infused with fun. It really is. And there are such great little touches, too. Like, when she first has this false awakening thing talking to the artist, she starts humming the Twilight Zone theme, and it's actually got an accurate, like, musical bar illustration of the Twilight Zone theme in her speech bubble. She's pissed off at Bogdanov at the artist. We never really see more than his hand. She throws a bomb at him, which he deflects back onto the drawing board. It wrecks the page he's working on and so trashes her bedroom. Because this is the kind of cartoon logic that fits so perfectly with Boom Boom. And into this story, and, you know, she is again complaining at the lack of cute boys, and he says, well, I'm the artist, I've got all of this at my fingertips, I can show you a range of cute boys across, you know, the Marvel Universe. And so he gives her, you know, a catalog, he starts out with Spider-Man. Who he describes as the corporate logo, which I enjoyed. But she says, nah, she doesn't want to muddy up MJ's pond. So hey, good for you, Boom Boom. That really sounds like a euphemism. I guess it kind of does. That's true. But yeah, she knows who MJ is because MJ is a movie star and a model at this point. And so he says, what about Reed Richards? Boom Boom is looking around and checking out the Fantastic Four, turns to Invisible Woman to say, so Susie, does his gray at the temple look drive you bananas too? And Susan just kicks Boom Boom literally out of the panel. Boom Boom decides that she's had enough of married men, so she is going to go with the greatest sort of upstanding single stud of the era, Captain America. And it turns into this wonderful Leave it to Beaver parody, where he's like super traditionally 1950s, and they have these two kids who run by and knock the breakfast that Boom Boom's cooking in her frilly apron onto her face, and it's just so wonderfully inappropriate for her. And she quickly has had enough and yells, ARTIST! to be got out. 
they run then in very quick order through other options. Uh, Daredevil, who's got a nice body but is way too serious, never even notices she's there. Namor, who is too self-obsessed and obviously just needs a mirror, not a girlfriend. Doctor Doom, which gives us the best name option of all of them ever, which is Boom Boom Von Doom. Oh man, I don't think Tabitha Smith would necessarily take somebody's last name if she married them, but Boom Boom Von Doom might change her mind. It would certainly change my mind if I was her and also a lot of other things were different. Okay, that's gotta be someone's roller derby name. Boom Boom Von Doom? Yes. Okay, listeners, if you want to do derby and you're trying to think of a name, then whoever hears this first, Boom Boom Von Doom, it's all yours. It is. And please say hi and we'll sponsor you. I don't know how we'll actually do that. We'll send you a t-shirt, I guess. There we go. We'll totally send you a t-shirt, Boom Boom Von Doom. And then it's on to Dr. Octopus, who's out of shape, and Hulk, who's in shape, but he's a slob. But I think my favorite is, uh, second favorite at least, is Wolverine, who she says is too woodsy. She couldn't find anywhere to shop out there. And the whole time she's painting bright pink onto her, like, Wolverine claw-style fingernails. Well, she's just got Wolverine claws in this. Yeah, and it's pretty adorable. she's got situation-appropriate get-ups in each of them. Let's see, I think finally she ends up with the Punisher, who narrates, as he does, sneaking around another corner of another scuzzy street. This time it's different. She's here, a partner, someone to share the rich smells of garbage and dust and rot, blood and gore, the intangibles that make this work so satisfying. My kind of woman. It was really hard not to burst out laughing while you were saying that and ruined the quote. This is like the one time that I'm glad my voice is also like hoarse and growly this week. It's so wonderful. Right. I can keep doing this all night. And so she's like, okay, artist, this is terrible. None of these boys are working out. Just give me a cute boy who's not horrible. I like the hair bow. It reminds me of Viscera, kind of. (laughs) All right, Frank Castle, enough of this. And so John Bogdanov is like, okay, well, the cutest, smartest, most lovable guy in the entire Marvel Universe, and draws Franklin Richards, who gives her a kiss on the cheek. Aw. And she is charmed. And we are charmed also because Franklin Richards is, in fact, adorable. And also possibly the merciless angry god of the world in which this story takes place. That's possible as well. So we have not done a listener contest in a long time. It's true. And this brings me to, I, this brings me to something that I really want to see. So listeners, whatever your medium is, if you're an artist, a visual artist, or a writer, what we want to see is boom, boom, romance stories. Write us a short vignette, draw us a romance comic cover, Something like that featuring Boom Boom. Keep them PG. She is a teenager. She is underage. We will share them. Whatever our favorite one is, we will send you something cool. There's a decent chance that it will be made of cardboard and spaghetti, as per the last ones, or something. It'll probably be heart-shaped. Of course. We'll figure something out. Or possibly we'll just, you know, blow up your room slightly. We will not blow up your room. We will definitely not blow up your room, but we will send you something cool. We'll choose our favorites. And I'm going to say, because we are so busy in August, just send them to us by September 15th. That seems reasonable. And then we'll have some time to we can look at them after Rose City Comic Con. Yes. So, yeah, we just have one story left to tell you about. And I'd be hard-pressed to pick whether I enjoyed this one or the Boom Boom one more. I think maybe the Boom Boom one a little bit more, but this Jubilee story is delightful. So, actually, here's the thing about that. You were talking when we were writing this episode about how you couldn't decide which story you liked more, and you also couldn't decide which character you liked more. And I would like to postulate that the great thing about Jubilee and Boom Boom, and the great thing about characters in general, is that you do not have to pick one. It's so true, because a lot of people really compare Boom Boom and Jubilee, because, you know, on the surface, they're similar. They're both mall rat teenage girls. But really, personality-wise, they couldn't be more different. They each occupy a totally different niche in the Marvel Universe. Like, Boom Boom is really strongly femme. She's really boy-crazy. She's kind of an anarchist in a lot of ways. And a lot of how she comes off is very pointedly pretense and performance. 
Jubilee strikes me as a lot more genuine. Like she is a mall rat and she's kind of a valley kid, but she's also incredibly smart. And that's just sort of genuinely who she is. Yeah. And I mean, she doesn't have any of that boy crazy stuff that Jubilee does. She's mostly just concerned with, I'm a kid. Let's go and do awesome things. And I will also say the you have to pick one Boom Boom or Jubilee thing points me to one of my least favorite things, which is the if two female characters are similar, even to the point that if there are two female characters, they're fundamentally in competition. But if they're similar, one of them's got to be redundant to the other. And the thing I love about them at this era is that they're not. They're actually a great character study in how to differentiate two characters who have a ton of superficial similarities. Writers, pay attention. Do this. Now, that said, when they do first meet up in the Extinction Agenda, they do immediately clash because they think each is trying to steal the other's shtick. Well, right, because they're coming from, you know, again, the same cultural background that leads us to think that we have to have a favorite between them. Yeah, good point, good point. So this story is written by Sally Pashkow, who actually, I'm pretty sure, is just Chris Claremont writing under a pen name. Can we refer to him as Sally Pashkow henceforth? I think we can, at least for a little this bit, is, sure. This is the butterfly dreaming that it is a samurai samurai dreaming that it's a butterfly thing. Is it Chris Claremont writing as Sally Pashkow or Sally Pashkow writing as Chris Claremont? Oh, jeez. You're showing my brain inside out, Jay. I mean, I've met him in person. It's Chris Claremont, but... You mean Sally Pashkow? What if we're just dreaming? Oh, jeez. What if we are all the dreams of Sally Pashkow? <laughs> the dreams of Sally Pashkow, the Jay and Miles story. The everything story. Even so... Franklin Richards. Oh, right. Good point. So this story is wonderful because it's narrated by Jubilee as written by Sally slash Chris. And her voice is so good. Like, okay, Chris Claremont gets some flack for writing slang and accents in this kind of exaggerated, silly way. And I mean, sure. Okay, that's true. But the way he writes Jubilee is just so endearing that I have to forgive him everything. All right. You're going to have to pretend I have gum to crack or take it as red. So like it's typical Hollywood mall, you know, the usual burnt out crowd doing their typical Saturday night wannabe. Gotta have it. Got it. So supper strut acid washed to the max looking for hip hop only too terribly cool. They think to make their own. So totally spasmoid. You'd crack your jaw from yawning, you know. And the narration is like this for the entire story because Jubilee is a motor mouth. Even in her own head, she doesn't shut up and it's endlessly entertaining. You know what I want to see? What's that? I want to see like classic detective noir story. Only it's Jubilee narrating it the way Jubilee narrates. <laughs> that would be amazing. I would be so into that. Like, all of the genre trappings are there, but she just describes them again in her words in the way that she would and with her voice. So the visuals are all, like, black and shadows and gray, and the narration is all bright neon. Exactly. That would be an amazing thing. Mondo Venetian blinds. Could you not get a decent set of curtains? <laughs> And yeah, the story opens when she teleports to the Outback, directly out of the Uncanny X-Men issue, Ladies Night, where she first appeared. And we see her point of view as she's gradually finding her way around the subterranean complex below where the X-Men are living. This is originally, the, I believe, the Reavers space, and the X-Men are just using basically a very small corner of it. So Gateway, the guy who opens the teleportation circles to and from the Outback, actually leads her to some of the tunnels. He also says, Welcome, child. And then pushes her down a hole. This is like one of the only times Gateway has spoken ever. Like, he didn't even speak to Rogue. And I love that the only person he talks to is this weird mall rat kid that showed up out of nowhere. She runs around in the dragon's horde a little bit, tries on some of the fancy clothes that are randomly down there. Oh yeah, the pit is full of gold coins and, like, treasure. Yeah, you know, we've seen some of that when the X-Men explored in that one Christmas issue where they took all of these stolen goods back to their original owners. Well, the ones that they could trace back, obviously there's still a lot left for Jubilee to land in. And she's reminded of her past shopping experiences here with her, quote, Sort of not quite best friend Sinjin. Really, Cynthia, Jennifer, can't you just gag? Again, the narration just keeps going. A mile a minute. It is nonstop and fast-paced and wonderful. 
And so, yeah, she's sneaking around. And I got to say, with all the dialogue here, with all the thought bubbles and the captions, like this is lettered by Joe Rosen. Do you think Tom Orzakowski warned him about working with Claremont? I assume that people talk like everyone in comics knows everyone in comics and everyone talks about stuff. I wonder if there's like a secret survival guide. There might be. So if you're going to letter for Chris Claremont, just realize you are going to be working hard. It's going to be fun dialogue, but goddamn, there's going to be a lot of it. All right. Just learn to stack very, very quadrilateral letters. You got to fit as much into it into as little space as you can. And so uh, Jubilee wanders around and she actually sees the X-Men doing what they do in their time off, which is playing baseball. And this scene is so charming. We see for the first time Jubilee just smiling genuinely. So like if I say hi, will they let me play? Never met anybody like them. And just the degree to which she is intimidated by these people and kind of makes fun of them a little in her head because she's intimidated by them, but also just really, really, really wants them to be her friends. It's charming. Yeah, so she sneaks away back through the tunnels to her hidey hole, which is a tiny room she's set up with a mattress on the floor and a mirror. To tell her parents about how things are going. Comments, as always, to the parentals. I tell them everything. Passes the time. It's easy, too, since I carry him with me. And she pulls out a picture of a couple with the much younger version of her, who is actually wearing the same shirt that we saw her wear at the mall. Yeah, I know it's a photo. What am I, dense? But what can I do, right? Considering the reallys are ashes at the bottom of Mulholland Drive. And just the casual way that she talks about her parents having died, about her being an orphan, which we start to piece together just what her past looks like, that's some sad stuff. This whole thing is poignant. Like, it's funny, we're seeing all of Jubilee's really entertaining dialogue, but underneath that, there's a whole lot of sadness that she's just trying to talk quickly enough that she can't think about it too hard. Yeah, that's very, very much the impression it gives, and just how casually she works it into the rest of her life is really effective. She has such a strong voice here. Now, she manages to put together... This amazing outfit from bits and pieces of the X-Men's clothes and costumes. Okay, so how would you rank this next to the outfit that Kitty Pride makes for herself in the, like, X-Men 150 era? Okay, it's less spectacular. Jubilee is a little bit older. She has a little bit more taste. She's a little bit better at putting together outfits than Kitty really ever will be. So it's more cohesive. It is not as spectacular. It's definitely not as shiny and glittery. This is, however, another outfit that I really wish people would cosplay because it is fucking fantastic. Right, she's got Dazzler's leotard, Rogue's tights and boots, Wolverine's gloves, Storm's vest, Longshot's bag, and quote, A pair of the most ultimately killer shades. Yes, it's those sunglasses. This is the issue where she gets those sort of squarish pink sunglasses that she's going to be wearing for the next million years. So I'm trying to figure out where those come from because this is the kind of thing I obsess about. Sunglasses, yeah. Yeah, so at this point, they look red in this issue and they're very specifically the style of sunglasses that Cyclops is wearing during this era, but there's no reason that they'd have those in Australia. Right, Cyclops has really never been to the Australian base and he and the X-Men have only overlapped a little and I can't think of any reason why they would have stolen his shades. Right, but that's what they specifically appear to be. Like, I wonder if that was an accident or just sort of happened or if they eventually started to get colored pink as disambiguation or what. I'm not sure, but regardless, it makes me really happy to see them show up here because that look is so iconic that she's going to have in the 90s. And this is where it starts. But yeah, so Jubilee's wandering around exploring some of the creepy caverns underneath the Reaver base. And she's actually attacked by, like, a cyborg dog. This dog that's, you know, partially robotized. She gets hurt. She's crying. She thinks it's going to kill her. And finally... As it's lunging at her, she's able to produce a much larger explosion of her fireworks than she ever has before she's able to stop it. So that's sort of a precursor of things to come, where Jubilee's powers would end up being incredibly powerful, and then everyone would forget about it. But it's nice to see that that's starting in one of her very first appearances. Well, and that that's not a form of her powers that comes naturally to her. It's one that she's able to get to under duress, but it's not something she normally can or wants 
to access. Yeah, it does a good job of showing just how untrained she is, how much she's just sort of raised herself, including figuring out her powers. So, you know, nice little character work in that, too. And eventually, she basically atomizes the dog that's attacking her, and for the first time, feels kind of confident about herself. Because I'm Jubilee. I can do things. I've got power. Far out, you know? I love Jubilee so much, and I love Boom Boom so much, and I love Doctor Doom so much, and Magneto so much, and the Blues Brothers so much. So, yeah, these annuals, the lead stories are not all that hot, but the backups are solid gold. I love them so much. Well, three of them are. The Magneto and Doctor Doom one I can kind of take or leave. It's not a bad story. It's a really odd fit here. It feels extraneous in the same ways, in fact, that the miniseries that it comes out of felt extraneous. But it does feature some excellent Doctor Doom and Magneto villainous speechifying, and I always love villainous speechifying. Speaking of things we love, listeners, we love you, and you have questions. GPAC3 asks on Tumblr, If you were going to judge the U.S. presidents solely by the quality of the X-Men comics that came out during their presidencies, who would be the best president and who would be the worst? That is a really weird question, and I kind of love it. Yeah, that's a loaded one, too. So if we are judging the quality of presidencies strictly on the basis of the quality of the X-Men comics that came out during them, I gotta say, this is ending up at occasional odds with our actual leanings. It's sort of all over the place. What have you got? I think you actually did this and looked up presidency-specific dates and cross-correlated. Yeah, I did. So as far as the best, uh, you really have a couple of options there. One of the potential options would be Jimmy Carter, who was president from 77 to 81, because during his presidency, you get stories like the Phoenix Saga and the Dark Phoenix Saga, you get Days of Future Past, you really get Chris Claremont and thus the X-Men finding their voice for the first time. Ah, but God Loves Man Kills is Reagan, that's 82. Well, yeah, Reagan was president from 81 to 89, and yeah, we get God Loves Man Kills, we get the Brood Saga, everything through there till Inferno, we get New Mutants, X-Factor, and Excalibur all finding their voices. So between Carter and Reagan, I gotta say Carter has some of the strongest focused X-Men work, but Reagan just has such large quantity of good X-Men stuff, and the 80s are my favorite X-Men era, so I would give the slight lead in this very specific regard to Ronald Reagan. And, you know, and I'm going to say really quickly, I like how carefully you're being to ground this in its specific context. I mean, we try not to get political on the show. Well, I was going to say, we're honest about our own biases, but listeners, you are aware that this is not a particularly politically oriented show. I know that spirits and tempers are high this season. If you are going to turn this into a debate in the comments, please keep that debate focused on the time periods and the comics that came out during them. Yes, indeed. As we have tried to do here. (laughs) So as far as the worst era, once again, we have a couple of options. Now, initially, I was going to say Bill Clinton, who was president from 1993 to 2001. Oh, yeah, that's The worst X-Men comics. That's really rough. It was. Because, you know, the dark 90s are what I often call that era. And indeed, there were some comics that were not so good. He does also have the beginnings of the rebirth. So he's got, you know, the Morrison run starts then too. He does. Yeah. And there's also the fact that the 90s have some really charming stuff. I mean, those are kind of the iconic X-Men that really solidified who they were in the 90s. You also have Age of Apocalypse, which is an amazing story. But then again, you have stuff like Onslaught, which was not so much, and Operation Zero Tolerance, which on the one hand had some cool, unusual characters, but was perhaps not a great story. Yeah, man, I think Bill Clinton is not coming out of this looking good as far as the X-Books. But then I was thinking about George H.W. Bush from 1989 to 1993. Now, this is the era that we're starting to cover now, and it's a really weird era because it's where the X-Books start to become really unfocused, and it's also where Chris Claremont and Louise Simonson get forced out of Marvel as artists get more and more of a say. It's where a lot of 
what turned the dark 90s into the dark 90s got their start with some really unfortunate excess. So maybe not the specific worst stuff, but a lot of its roots start popping up during the H.W. Bush presidency. Yeah, that bad attitude over substance kind of thing that would maybe create some of the crappier things in the Clinton era of comics without kind of the good stuff from the Clinton era of comics to balance them out. Now, there is some good stuff here, too. I mean, 1993, the sort of bridging year was when Executioner's Song happened, which I have a lot of affection for. So there's that. So basically, there's your choice. Maybe Carter and maybe Reagan for the best, maybe Clinton and maybe Bush for the worst. You know, I would give George W. Bush's administration, I would put it maybe not at the best, but among the best. There was some good stuff because that was like the Joss Whedon run. Yeah, stuff, that's when right? you have the Whedon run. And honestly, it's been really strong since. I feel like the end of the Clinton years, the X books were actively turning around and they've been fairly strong since. Yeah, I mean, you know, certainly some eras were stronger than others. Like the Bendis era, I think, was a particular highlight, but uh, agreed. So there you go. There's your answer about politics when described entirely by the X-Men. Meanwhile, another question. It's Paul McGroovy asks on Tumblr. Who do you think is the most and least convincing multiverse character inversion in the X-World? It's clear from additional context in this question that they're talking about moral inversions, so supervillain versions of characters who are usually heroes, etc. Yeah. So what do you think? What's your favorite? Oh, man. I have a lot of them. I like Dark Beast because Dark Beast is such a natural extrapolation of Hank McCoy. Like, it's very much a direction you could see that character turning or having turned and his plausibility is part of what makes him so scary and interesting. Conversely, I am also a fan of Ultimate Longshot. Oh, that was a weird interpretation of Longshot. Yeah, Ultimate Longshot is really dark. And considering how regular Longshot's powers work and how heavily they're based in good intentions and innocent intentions, having a darker version of that character is a really, really interesting twist. Let's yeah, see. Yeah, he was like a killer, wasn't he? Like He was a serial killer. He was a mutant supremacist who was also an extremely jealous partner who was then a murderer. Damn it, yeah. Longshot. Stop was, being ultimate. He was not a good dude. And we're not there yet. In Excalibur, in the cross-time caper, we're going to hit a universe that is ruled by a supervillain triumvirate of Kitty Pride, Ilyana Rasputin, and Doug Ramsey. I'd forgotten about that story. Yeah, that does happen. So they're fantastic. Although I think the best evil Doug, again, because he feels so plausible, is one from one of the more recent New Mutants series, The True Friend. Oh, where he's basically taken over the world? Yeah. And he is so scary and so sad and again such a logical extrapolation of so many of the things that doug is scared about in himself at that point in the comics so i think he's a really interesting twist the ones i like most tend to be ones that either push characters with a very slight nudge in a direction that makes a lot of sense for them or that are just a radical inversion that radically radically re-envisions some fundamental aspect of them i guess good point yeah yeah, for me, I'll, I'll keep it brief, but uh, Lightning Force Nightcrawler, the weird Nazi version of Nightcrawler that we just covered in our Excalibur issues. Oh, yeah, man, he's terrifying. He works really well, and I think for the same reason, because you can see Nightcrawler going in that direction under other circumstances, and that's part of what makes him scary. I also really enjoyed the Age of Apocalypse version of Havoc, who let his jealousy toward his brother overwhelm him so much that he just became a horrible human being. Oh, yeah, man, Age of Apocalypse Havoc is fascinating and sad. He totally is. Uh, what about least favorite? Honestly, this isn't. I'm going to cheat because this isn't an alternate universe, but in the Axis crossover... That's not cheating. Axis counts. Okay. Well, in the Axis crossover event, when uh, heroes got turned into villains and villains got turned into heroes, the villainous version of Genesis, Evan Sabanur, you know, the sort of clone of Apocalypse who was then raised as a good kid and who's currently one of the main characters of all new X-Men, 
when he went evil, he just turned into straight up apocalypse. And that's such a boring way to do that because that's just basically saying that the only thing stopping you from being this character is your good heart. And that kind of removes his entire upbringing, that removes his background, that removes the circumstances around him. And it just seemed like kind of a, a cop out and it made me sad. Yeah, access everything. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> I was not a fan of Sixus as an event. Sixus was not so hot, yeah. All right, so that is that. Now, we are a fully listener-supported podcast, and one of the rewards that patrons get if they donate at certain levels is thanks on air from a variety of fictional characters and concepts. So let me turn it over to the angry Claremontian narrator. Did you think, Sean Golly, that retrieving the Horn of Doom would give you the power to wield it? If you refuse to learn from the terrible fate of Paul Castillo, then perhaps it is best that you share it. And with that, I think we've actually got more this episode, so I have Dr. Doom waiting in the wings. Doom's science, as mighty as his sorcery, can dominate the minds of normal men even more easily than that of that misguided fool Magneto. But you, Icon UK, and you, Luke Hare, are worthy of at least a modicum of Doom's rarely granted respect. When you are crushed beneath Doom's steel boots, it shall not be through circuits or spells, but through sheer power, through Doom's indomitable will. Savor your freedom and your strength, UK and Hare, while Doom still permits. Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon, and produced by Kylie Out, host of the Godzilla podcast, Kaiju Cast. New episodes of our show come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, visual companions to every episode, along with interviews, fan art, recaps, reviews, and more. And come see us at Rose City Comic Con, September 10th and 11th at the Oregon Convention Center in Portland, Oregon. We're also going to be having an after-hours party, I believe at the same venue as last year. We will have details of that for you shortly. We've got a live episode that we're recording at the convention on Saturday. We will be tabling all weekend. Uh, we've got a booth. Al Ewing will be hanging out with us. And we will explain the hell out of things and sell them to you. We will indeed. And our show is 100% listener supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad free and to keep us able to do stuff like Rose City Comic Con, then check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, it's X-Babies, Looney Tunes, and the return of Rick Sherita. As we detour into Marvel Comics Presents and see what Excalibur gets up to instead of annuals. Mm -hmm.